Colossians chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 3 and 4. It says, for ye are dead. <laughs> and your life is hid with Christ in God. Verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. The word says that your word is life. They are the spirit and they are life. Let the revolutionary knowledge flow in this hall this morning. Let every ears be anointed to receive and every heart be anointed to receive your word this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody say it. Yes. Amen. Christ is your life. You know, when I was listening to one of the songs that the, um, you know, the worship team presented this morning, you know, he said, Jesus is your healer. He is your that, your savior. He is your Lord. And I was waiting for Jesus is your life. So maybe we should put that in there. Jesus is your life. Amen? Amen. Christ is your life. Colossians 3, what we read, say that Christ, who is your life? You know, one of the, I would say, the greatest inheritance, the greatest blessing that we have as believers, as children of God, is a gift of the gift of eternal life. Agreed? Yes. The gift of eternal life. Bible says that we were dead in our sins, right? We were dead in our sins, but he came to give us life. And Jesus said, the thief does what he comes to kill and to destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it most abundantly. The gift of eternal life is the greatest inheritance that we have as the children of God, in our new identity as the children of God. Eternal life is, is God's kind of life. It's God's kind of life. It is Christ's life. This life has no beginning. It has no end. That's the difference. It has no beginning and it has no end. You know, it is not a life that you have after you're dead. You see, many people think that eternal life begins when I'm dead. No, no, no. You and I enter into eternal life the moment we give our life to Jesus Christ. Amen. I mean, just think about it, that you have the life of Christ indwelling you. His mind is mind-boggling to know that the living Christ indwells me. Now, unfortunately, this is uh, a topic that is not, we, we don't hear so very much from the pulpit. And probably because we don't have a good understanding of what it means to have the indwelling Christ in you, to have the life of Christ in you. Now, there are, there are two words, um, life, there are two Greek words, that is translated life in the Bible. One is Zoe, 
Zoe, and then the other one is bios. Zoe means eternal life, God's kind of life. And this life resides in our spirit. There is bios. Is bios is from where you get the word biology. That is a life principle that is in our body. And so we can move, we can talk, we can be conscious because we have bios life. Amen? Amen. The unsaved has bios life. It doesn't have the eternal life, which is God's kind of life, which resides in our spirit. And that is why we say that the, uh, you know, the unsaved is spiritually dead. Dead, spiritually dead. Because there is no life in the spirit. It is separated from God. You know, life or death means the absence of life, right? Absence of life. Therefore, if there is no life in the spirit, then that spirit is dead. And in this case, the life of God. You see, the spirit man of the unsaved is dead to God, but alive unto the world. Dead to God, but alive unto the world. Zoe, which is the eternal life, is a real life. It is the true life. It is the life that wins. It is a life that overcomes. It is the fulfilling life. It is a life that has absolute righteousness, absolute freedom, absolute holiness, absolute love, peace, joy, absolute power, contentment. It is a life without frustration, a life without chaos, a life, is a life without despair. God is never in despair. God is never in chaos. God is never frustrated. And that is the life that indwells you and I. Amen? Amen. That is the life that indwells you and I. Jesus Christ is the source of this life. In, in John chapter 1, verse 4, it says, in him, that is in Christ, was the life. In him was the life. And this life was a light of men. You know what light does? Light enlightens. And to be enlightened means that you know, you, you can understand, you are made wise, you are guided, and in this case, concerning the purpose of God. And so this life, which is the light of men, helps us to know the purpose of God. And the purpose of God for each and every one of us is to glorify God. Amen. So glorify God. And glorify means you are an expression. You are an expression of God. And so if we have the life of Christ in us, it means that we are to express that life to the world. Amen? Amen. The book of John, the Apostle John, in fact, he gave the purpose for him writing the gospel according to John. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And I will read. He says, this is John's purpose for writing the gospel of John. So it should be something that you want to look at. It says that you and I may believe. Believe what? Believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing... You may have life. You may have life in this name. And the Amplified it says that in this name says by his merit and by his power. You see, 
the life that Christ gives us is not separate from him. That life is in him. And so when, you know, the gift of life is not separate from Christ himself. That life is made manifest when you know and you can embrace the fact and appropriate the fact that you have Christ in you. To live in his name is to live by his own life. And that is to live his person of life. And that means that you would love as he loves. You would obey as he obeys. You will be dependent on the Father, even as he was dependent on the Father. Paul says in Galatians 2, I am building up to something here. Paul says in Galatians 2, 20, says, I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified, but Paul was still alive. So who was crucified? The old man that he was. The person that he was before he became a believer. See, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, it's not I that live. The new man is not I that live, but what? Christ lives in me. Christ does what? He lives in me. He says, the life that are now expressed in the flesh, in this body, it is by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for us. And therefore, we can say that Jesus gave his life for us, right? He gave his life for us in order to give his life to us so that he can manifest his life through us. I want you to get this because many of us, you know, I I read one book that said, you know, imitation of Jesus, imitation of Christ. You cannot imitate Christ to start with. You cannot live the Christian life. The Christian life is not difficult, (laughs) but it's impossible. Because the Christian life is Christ's life. You cannot live your wife's life or your child's life. You can only live your life. It's only me that can live my life. It's only Christ that can live his life. Therefore, if I want the life of Christ to be made manifest in me, it is Christ living his life in and through me. Now, we have a, a dilemma, and the dilemma is this. It is one thing to have Christ's life in you, and it is another to experience that life in every aspect of your being. It's one thing to have the, Christ, the life of Christ in you, yet it is another to experience that life in every aspect of your being, by your being, I mean, the way you think, the way you reason, the way you, uh, I mean, your deeds, the things you say, your behavior, is one thing. The life of Christ is indwelling you. It is another. Uh, that, that life is being expressed, is being made manifest in every aspect of your life. And in fact, in many of us, um, there appears to be little or no evidence of the indwelling Christ, very unfortunately, in our thought, in our words, and also in our deeds. And the question is, why is it so? Why is it so? In fact, maybe the first question should be, if I have the Christ's life indwelling me, and I have my own life, how can I manage these two lives? How can I manage the life of Christ and my own life, which is called the self-life? How can I manage these two lives so that I can live victoriously? Amen. So that I can live that victorious Christian life. In fact, there is a term 
there's a term in clinical psychology. It's called bipolar. You have different personalities. <laughs> if you if you know if you know what I mean, you have two at by meeting two. So you have two personalities. So you have the life of Christ and you have your own life. Does that mean we become bipolar? No, we are not. And that is what I want to address very quickly this morning. <laughs> bipolar. <laughs> but let's start with what is this self-life, your own life? I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about you know, the power that allows you to talk, to move, to reproduce, and all of that. I'm talking about your self-life. What is that self-life? Your self-life and my self-life is a self-centered life. It's a self-centered life. And how did we come about this self-centered life? You see, you and I were born with a birth defect. A birth defect. It is, it is a birth defect that we inherited from our ancestral parents, Adam and Eve. It, 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 it isn't your fault. We had it from, from him. But, you know, sometimes we say, hey, if I were Adam and Eve, I would have been different. Nope, you wouldn't have been different. We had that birth defect. And the birth defect is this, that we were born spiritually dead. We were born spiritually dead. And, the, the, you know, that means the life of Christ wasn't, I mean, the life of God was not in our spirit. And so being spiritually dead, dead to God, but alive to the world. And you know that man is a three-part being. We are spirit, we have a soul, and then we live in a body. So God's design, the origin, God's design was that we have what? A living spirit. A living spirit. See, with the spirit, we communicate and relate with God. And then a living soul. With our soul, we have the sense of self-consciousness. And then I can relate with you. The, the, the function of the soul has to do with thinking, your mind, has to do with, um, you know, the way you make decisions, and that is your will, and also has to do with the way that you emote, in other words, the way you feel. And so when we talk about our personality, our personality has to do with the way we think, the way we feel, and the way we take our decision. And so God's plan, or God's design for you and I was to have this living spirit, that we can relate with God, hear from God, and this goes through our soul. We analyze in our soul, and then we express it out in our bodies, through our bodies. The body with the five senses, the sense of touch, the sense of taste, the sense of smell, the sense of sight, the sense of sound, is what we use to relate with the environment. And so God's design for us was to live from inside out. We live from inside out. We hear from God. We depend on God. And then our minds will analyze. Our mind is, I mean, our soul is alive. It's living, related to the, to the spirit. It's, it is the spirit that gives life. So from the spirit, through the soul, onto the outside. But here, the, you know, the dilemma we had with the birth defect that we had is that the spirit is dead. Dead to God, but alive to the world. And we have to live our lives, right? We have to live in this world. So, 
not hearing from God, we have to live from outside in. Outside in, instead of inside out. We live through the messages that we receive from man, from our parents, as we are growing up, significant people in our lives. We live from the messages that we get from them, from the world, from the television, from school, or from schools, from the enemy. We get all those messages, and then we are programmed, we are programmed to live that way. And that is the source of the self-life. Go with me to the book of um, first, um, first, first, first Peter, First Peter chap- chapter, chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3, is it 3? Verse 18. First Peter chapter 3. Uh, no, no, 1 chapter 1, verse, verse 18. Sorry. First Peter chapter 1, verse 18. It says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver and gold, from your aimless conduct, Received by tradition from your forefathers, a life that we have been programmed with. In fact, um, give it to me in the message. The message. It says it costs God plenty to get you out of that dead end, empty-headed life you grew up in. It costs God. He describes it as dead end, empty-headed life that you grew up in. And this is the life we have been programmed that way, you know, from our forefathers, from our parents, significant people that God has brought into our lives. And consequently, independent of God, we are no longer relying on God. We have been programmed to live from outside in instead of inside out. Totally independent of God. And this is what the Bible calls the flesh. The flesh is not referring to your muscles and your bones and your tissues. It's referring to that self-life where you are, everything is focused around you. Let me give you a definition, and this is a This is an academic um, definition, being a teacher. It says, uh, the the, the self-life can be be defined as a mindset. It starts with a mindset. A mindset, an attitude, strategies of living where my primary focus is myself, where I am living and getting my needs met using my resources. I want to be careful with the needs. You see, relational needs, the need to be loved, the need for worth, the need to be significant, the need to have value, the need to be accepted. You see, I can use my own resources, my looks, my heritage, my education, my IQ, my intellect, my talents, my sense of humor. I can use any of those things to get my needs met can use any of those things. I can preach from this pulpit with my resources, without the anointing of God. Okay, 
and I, and, and I can do that with all kinds of gyrations to get my need for worth, my need for significance, my need to be accepted. I use all those resources. I use my looks. I use my muscles, you know, to get my needs met, the need for love. I can do all of that. That is the self-life. And that is what the Bible calls the flesh. And if you go to Galatians 5, from 19 to, to 21, Paul tells us the deeds of the flesh, just some of it. Amen? The deeds of the flesh. Let's, let's, let's go there very, very quick, quickly, please. Galatians chapter 5, verse, verse 19. Galatians chapter 5, verse, verse 19. It starts by saying, <laughs> it is obvious that, it's obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own ways all the time. In other words, I'm using my own ways to get my needs met. And it starts by saying, repetitive, loveless sex. Morality. A stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage. Frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness. Continue. Trinket, gods, idolatry, magic show, <laughs> religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming, yet never satisfied, once lost. A brutal temper, rage, and impotence to love. You cannot receive love and be loved. Because you can't re receive love, you cannot love. Divided homes and divided lives. Small-minded and lopsided pursuits. Oh, party spirit and all of that. It says, and such like things. And you know what? All of these are simply coping mechanisms. These are all coping, coping mechanisms. To cope is to, is to deal with an attempt to overcome problems and difficulties. So we cope. Oh, how are you doing? I'm coping. Yeah, you are really coping when you are living the self-life, when you are living according to the flesh. But are, are, we, are we supposed to cope? Romans 5, 17 says that they that have received the gift of righteousness and the abundance of, abundance of what? Abundance of grace. Shall do what? Shall reign. So it's either you are coping or you are reigning. And the question this morning is, are you coping with life or you are reigning in life? As, as a counselor, I, I come across, um, um, of course, counselors and people that are struggling with issues. And one of the things that I do is to find out how they have been coping with life. Because if you are not experiencing the life of Christ, if that Christ is not being expressed in you, you'll be coping. And so I try to find out what have you been, how have you been living your life? Because it is, that is the root. The moment you know that, uh, then, uh, you know, you, 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 you can find a cure. You can find a cure for that. So let me give you just a few of the coping mechanisms that I have found in some of my counselors. One of them is becoming self-absorbed. You see, usually when you when you are in a situation when life is not going the way that you want. And that is when that self, that self life, the flesh, becomes apparent. 
my participants had called that your default, <laughs> your natural default. You know, you default to that. You become self-absorbed. You become overly introspective. You analyze everything. You feel sorry for yourself. You know the, you know, uh, you know the the sorry pity party, and then you engage in self pity. You withdraw. There are some of us that what they do is just is just to withdraw. I call that the silent treat, treatment. You know, your husband annoys you. Silent treatment. I ain't gonna talk to you. You sleep on your own side of bed. I sleep on my own side. No talking. Or we escape pain. Sometimes we escape pain, you know, the pressures of life by doing what? Watching TV. We get into drugs, alcohol. Or some escape, try to escape pain by sex. We become hostile. We vent our anger. You know, there are you know, two kinds of people when it comes to anger. It's either you stuff your anger or you vent it. When you vent it, it's rage. And when you stuff it, that's even terrible because it needs only a little thing and it's going to blow up. We become self-righteous, mm, self-justifying. We become defensive. People that always will always defend themselves when you tell them this is what has happened, they become very, very defensive. That is self-righteousness. You assume that I am never the problem. I see a couple that come, they say, all I want is for you to fix my wife. If you fix my wife, there'll be no problem. Or fix my husband. I'm not the problem. She is the problem. He is the problem. He is the problem. We refuse, we refuse to take responsibility for our failures. We develop critical spirit. Mm, critical spirit. We find faults everywhere. Find fault with yourself. Find fault with the dogs, with the cats. You find fault. Critical spirit. One of them that is so very common is people that are so highly opinionated. You know, they have opinions for everything. You know, they have to be heard. If you don't hear their voice, it means something is wrong. And why do we do this? For to meet our sense of worth. If I don't say something, then I'm worthless. If I don't say something, that I'm not of value. If I don't say something, then I am rejected. One that is so common is, is you become a caretaker. A caretaker. You know who a caretaker is? You want to take care of everybody. You want to rescue everybody. You become over, overprotective. You take responsibility for others' failures. You know, your wife is coughing. Is it my fault? You know, you take responsibility for people's failure. You give unsolicited advice. Nobody wants your advice, but you will always give <laughs> advice. You become a people pleaser. You know who the people pleasers are? You are nice to everybody. You become a doormat because you want to be nice to everybody. Now, I often ask my, often ask my, um, you know, my counselors, now, is this life working out for you? And they always say, no. Nope. It's not working out. Obviously, when you live this way, the end result will always be conflicts. Conflicts, frustration, anxiety, unfulfillment when we live our lives this way. Now, this is the self-life that Christ has delivered us from. Amen? Amen. It's not all bad. This is the self-life that Christ has delivered us from. In Romans 5, 
Romans chapter 5, verse, verse, verse 10. Please go there with me. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. I want, I wanted to see how God has delivered us from this life. It says, if when we were at our worst, we were put on friendly terms, you know, meaning we're reconciled unto God, by God, by the sacrifice, by the sacrificial death of his son, now that we are at our best, just think how our lives will expand and deepen by means of his, what? Resurrection life. You see, Another version says that we are saved by his life. Uh, you know, I, would ask, I get confused. We are saved by his death, saved by his life. We are saved by his life. And this is telling us that the moment-by-moment moment decisions that we have to take, the moment-by-moment moment deeds, behavior, God saves us by the life of Christ. In other words, the indwelling life of Christ. It's not his death this time. His death made your forgiveness through, right? But this life helps you to be delivered from those moment-by-moment moment work in this life. We are saved by his resurrection life. Now, the, the question is, how does this salvation work out? How can we manage Christ's life that indwells us and our own self-life? And I want to tell you that all of us here, we have our own flesh. We, we do, we do, we do. I have mine, you know, we all, we all have it. Mine, if I, if I give you a little of mine, mine is self-pity, you know, self-pity. Mine is uh, procrastination, ask my wife. She will tell me, do this. <laughs> I'll wait until the last minute before I do it. <laughs> You know, procrastination, you know, passivity. You know, I wait until, you know, I always want to say, what should we do? You know, I'll tell you how I developed that. You see, you see, mine with the, pro, the, you know, the procrastination, this is what happens with when you procrastinate. You are afraid of failure. You know, if I procrastinate, at least I won't do it, and I have an excuse for failing, when I do it at the last minute, I say, I didn't have enough time. <laughs> the fear of failure. I didn't have enough time to do that. Now, so, how does, how did this uh, salvation, being saved by the life of Christ, how is it manifested? How is it worked out in us? You see, the, the, we are brought to a place where we can exchange our self-life for the life of Christ. There has to be that exchange. There has to be that exchange between your self-life and the life of Christ. The Christian life is the expression of the life of Christ through my human soul and body. And this happens only when we are willing to surrender our lives to God. That is, we surrender our thoughts, our emotions, our will, and our body in total submission to the will of God. This is where brokenness comes in. Brokenness and surrender. This is, this is a, a topic that <laughs> not many people want to hear it. Brokenness. What is brokenness? God, 
Brokenness is God's way of dealing with that self-life. That's it. There is no other way. You pray from down until heaven's come. You have to be broken. There has to be a surrender. There has to be an exchange of that self-life, which has become, that's your natural life. That, that is your comfort zone. And you're not going to let it go. There's going to be a fight with that. Brokenness is a process where my coping, mecha- my, my coping mechanisms, your coping mechanisms are nullified. In other words, it is made useless. All the manipulations, all the controls that you have produced in order to have your deed for love, what God brings you toward, not. The bankruptcy of your self-life is fully revealed to you. In other words, my procrastination is not going to help me anymore because my wife gets on my case. So I have to be broken and then I have to surrender that life and allow Christ's life to be made manifest because Christ does not procrastinate, right? Does he? He doesn't. I have to be broken. It is only at that point that I can now exchange my self-life with the life of Christ. It is a state of being in which placing my confidence in my flesh as a way of life is understood to be useless. I now live with the truth that says, Lord, I can't do it. You have to do it. Without you, I can do nothing. John chapter 15. You see, one of the reasons why many of us are going through trials, you're struggling, hardship, and the difficulties is because God is zeroing in on that aspect of your life. Because you would never experience the life of Christ if that life is not broken. And, we're going to, and we are going to fight it. We are going to resist it because that has been our normal life. So he, ha- he has to break it. Now, so God's purpose in breaking us is to bring us to the end of ourselves. Now, this is, this is not very popular. You've got to be brought to the end of yourself. Those controls that you have been so comfortable with. Every coping mechanism is a control. It's a control. You get angry and scream. You want others to shut up. That is a control. That is why we have rage and all of that. Now, let me illustrate with a live illustration, a live example of this process of brokenness. In, in this wild state, the horse, you know, I, I, I see that a wild horse, you can't use a wild horse. You have to break that horse, right? So, the, the, you know, the horse goes through a breaking process. And why is that done? So that that horse will be loyal to the leader. That lawyer will give instant obedience. I mean, just imagine riding on a horse and you want it to go right, it goes left. That is dangerous. Now, the training... 
or the breaking of that horse is, is not to destroy the spirit of the horse. It's not to, de- to, to destroy the zest of, for life in that horse. Maybe he wants me to talk from, 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 from my heart. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor. You are said I should speak from my heart. You know, as, as a teacher, we, uh, you know, we make notes. Thank you, brother. We make notes. <laughs> we make notes. And I'm used to notes, even though I'm, I'm still praying to be. All right. These are all modeled up now. But I was still talking about the horse. Broken. The horse is broken so that 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 horse will provide instant loyalty, obedience, instant obedience onto the rider or to the leader. You don't destroy the horse's zest for life, and that is the enthusiasm for life, the zeal for life. It's not destroyed. A broken horse will be a very good horse. That's all you can. They can ride on it and make money out of it. In the same way, in the same way, when a child of God is broken off the self life, your life will not be destroyed. Amen? Amen. Your zeal for life, your enthusiasm for life will not be destroyed. But what God is looking for is to turn your stubborn will my stubborn will, so that it will line up with the will of God. And that is the best thing that can happen to us. Amen? I have to go back to my notes. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Thank you, brother Wiley. Yeah. Yeah, I need it too. So I better go back to my notes. Now, thank you. I found it. What if I refuse to be broken? But if I refuse to be broken. Now, when I read this scripture, it really scared me. Proverbs chapter 29. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 1. What if I refuse to be broken? What if God has zeroed in on that aspect of your life that you've held on to? You are so stubborn about it. Here. It says, for people who hate discipline, and that's the breaking process, correction, and only get more stubborn. Can we all say more stubborn? More stubborn. <laughs> See what happens. There will come a day when life tumbles in and they break. But by that time, it will be too late to help you. It will be too late to help you. It's not, God wouldn't do this, but life, that life that you've been living, your control, your control measures, your coping mechanisms will lead you to that place. You hold on to it, that's what happens. The Bible says there is a way that seemed right unto a man. <laughs> but the end is what? Death. You see, the problem is that until you get to the end and then you see death, it's too late. It's too late to turn back. Now, let, let me give you, all right, uh, Psalm, Psalms 51, verse, verse 17. Psalm 51, verse 17. Say, I learned God worship. When my pride was shattered. <laughs> Your pride is going to be shattered, brothers and sisters. 
It's a hard, shattered life, ready for love. Don't for a moment escape God's notice. In other version, it says that it is a broken and con- a broken and contrite spirit. The Lord will not ignore. Do you want God to ignore you? I don't want God to ignore me. No, I want to be broken. I want to get to the place where my will, my emotions, everything is with God's will. Now, some of the benefits of brokenness. Some of the benefits of brokenness. You and I are going to experience the freedom that comes from living in total dependence upon God. There is, there is, there is, there is, there is, there is a freedom. There's a joy that comes when you know that I'm living in total dependence upon God. Jesus, when he was on earth, when he was walking this, this earth, Jesus said, I'll do nothing except that, that, that which I see my father doing. Jesus lived a life of total submission, total dependence upon, upon God. So there is, there is a freedom that we have when I know that he's got my back. I don't have to depend on my flesh, which brings nothing. All it does is to bring me conflict, frustration, anxiety, depression, chaos. Secondly, there's a joy of intimacy with the Father. The joy of intimacy. Intimacy means intimacy, you know. Intimacy with the Father. When he says that the Father and I are one, in John chapter 14, I think verse 20, 20 says that, in that day, this is Jesus speaking, in that day, you would know that I am in my Father, you in me, and I am in you. That is perfect union. There is that oneness that comes when we are broken. And lastly, we are conformed unto his image. Conformed unto the image of Christ. He says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed. To be conformed. So, as soon as you are in Christ, you have been predestined to be conformed unto the image of Christ. And we're going to resist that conforming. There has to be brokenness. There are some biblical passages, some Bible passages that deals directly with this. I'm going fast because I want to give you some time about how I was broken personally. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. 23, Matthew, and I'm not going to read this, but uh, Matthew chapter 10, verses 38 to 39, Matthew chapter 16, 24 to 25, all these passages has something in common. In fact, it's a common thread that runs through the four Gospels. It says, if you want to be my disciple, do what? Deny yourself. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. He said in Matthew chapter 16, in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, in John chapter 12, verses 24 and 25, says that except a grain of corn, a grain of wheat is planted and is dead, it abided alone. It cannot bring forth fruit. It says, this is, this is before he went to the cross. And he called his disciples, he said, except a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it abides alone. But when it dies, it's going to sprout. It's going to spring up and bear fruit. You see the blade, you see the stalk, 
And then from that one single fruit, you see millions of fruit. The same thing Jesus was, was saying, unless I die, unless I go through the cross, I will be the only safe person on the earth. Now see what the, the finished work of Jesus Christ did. Millions and millions of people are now saved. And it says, if you hold on to your life, you're going to lose it. If you hold on to that yourself life, you will lose the real life. You cannot manifest that life in you if you hold on to that other life. So, you know, when it says, take up your cross daily and follow me, it didn't say you should go and build a cross and carry it. No, no, no. There is only one cross. Hear me. There is only one cross, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. What it was saying, pick up your cross and follow me. It was saying, die to the self-rule, to the self-life. Amen? I have only five minutes, and I'm going to talk about something that is real to me. How this man standing before you was broken. You see, I, I became aware of the need for brokenness in 2005, 16 years ago. I was in college then, um, in, the, in the seminary, and I was starting to be a Christian counselor. And there was a class that we took <clears throat> And this man talked about, I mean, in detail, I'm just, you know, going on the surface here, about the need for brokenness and the need for surrender. That, that the life of Christ cannot be made manifest in you. You cannot express that life. You cannot live that life unless there is a breaking, unless there is brokenness. You have experienced brokenness, and then you will surrender. Then and only then can you exchange that life because you will see the uselessness of it. And so after the lecture, I went to the professor and said, please pray for me. I'm carrying so much baggage. This self-pity, this procrastination, and all of these things, I want to let go of those things. Pray with me so that I'm broken. Another thing that I was carrying was the crisis in my identity. My identity. I mean, I was so confused about who I was, um, for a good part of my life. Uh, it wasn't until just, like I said, about 16 years ago that I began to see a resolution in my identity crisis. And I want to talk about that identity issue. You see, from my birth, I was labeled a bastard. You know, a bastard. You know, illegitimate. And um, uh, that was the label that I carried. That was the stigma that I carried. And because I was born out of an extramarital affair. I was born out of, and of course, in that part of the world, that is the stigma, that is the label that you carry. Now, my mother's husband, and this is the person I thought was my father because uh, I was never told, well, I, didn't, I knew who my father was. Because they showed him to me. I saw him sometimes. But the person I thought was my father, who fathered me, uh, was not my biological father. But he had legally claimed me 
and accepted me as his son. He didn't adopt, we didn't go through, he didn't go through the adoption process. It was a legal case. Uh, and uh, I, was, I was told that in the court, you know, they asked my mother, because this, my father was, was, was a lawyer. They asked my mother, who do you want to go with? And he said, I'm going with this man. He said, okay, everything you have, go with that man. And, that was, and I was only maybe uh, two years old when this happened. But everyone in the community, including my step-siblings, knew about this. But I was the only one who didn't know. I didn't know about this. And it was only when I was 47 years old, 47 years old, I was already married with children, a professor in a university, and preparing to come here that my mother called me in the night. He said, come son, there's something I have to tell you. And he revealed the uh, secret to me. He said, hey, the man you think is your father, and both of them had died now. My particular father and my father died. He said, that man you thought was your father is not your father. This is your father. I, said, I went through to my wife. I said, sweetheart, I'm finished. I don't even know who I am. I don't even know who I am. You see, I had a feeling that something was wrong as I was growing up. Because each time I did something that offended my, my siblings, my step-siblings. When I say my step-siblings, my father married five wives. So these ones were, some of them were older, some, some were younger. They would not fail to tease me. They would call me by my father's name, by my particular father's name. And so I'm going, I'm, saying, I'm so confused. Why are they calling me? My mother would say, shh, don't say a word. And as if it was bad at home, when I go outside, people will introduce me when they say, oh, that is the son of Nadak. Nadak is my mother's name. So they introduced me as the son of that woman, never the son of my father. Do you get that? So yes. growing up with that confusion, it was not an easy thing for me. You see, I felt and believed that something was wrong with, with me. Something was wrong with me, especially the way that people treated me. My parents, my father and my mother, I'm talking about the one I knew as my father, they poured in so much love upon me. My mother went to the extent of overprotecting me, you know, and that is a dangerous thing. Because my mother would not allow me to go out to play. Because she, she was fearing when I go out, I'm going to get all those jeerings and the insults. Bastard. Oh, look at him, the bastard, you know. So she was, so he said, don't go out. Don't play outside. Don't do anything. That is dangerous. Because she was now covertly rejecting me. She was telling me, son, you can't protect yourself out there. Son, you can't do anything for yourself. I'm going to do it for you. And so I grew up. You can see where my passivity comes in. She's going to think for me. I don't have to think. You can see my procrastination comes in. I'm afraid to fail because I was never given the opportunity to fail in the first instance. I remember that when I was a child, I was very shy. Very, very shy. I had this overwhelming sense of shame, sense of guilt, because I thought it was my fault. 
this overwhelming sense of rejection. And there was always fear in me. And how did I cope with that? <laughs> I was a class clown. You know, as long as I make people laugh, I will feel some sense of worth and some sense of uh, value. I coped with that self-life. I lived in denial. You know, as long as I don't remember it, it won't affect me. I repressed my feelings. I had this zest for knowledge. I wanted to be in school forever. Because it was in school, I was, that was the only place I could find my value. You know, knowledge, the zest for knowledge. As long as I know that I know, and people know that I know, and they give me a score for knowing, I have my value. I have my, I have my sense of what. That is why I have four degrees today. Yeah, it wasn't good. <laughs> because, yeah, yeah. A bachelor's degree, two master's degree, and a doctorate degree. It was only a few years ago that my children said, Dad, stop going to school. Stop going to school. I still have the desire to, to have more degrees. Because I felt that is where I get my sense of worth. Now the turning point came in 2001. I was a member of a church um, here in Norcross. And this guy, his name is Jack Winter, he's, he's late now. He was preaching about the Father's love. The Father's love. And he talked about the Father's love. And he said, God is your Father. I said, wow. God is my Father? Wow. I'm so confused. You mean God is my Father? I was sitting with my wife. And so after the service, I went up to him and said, hey, you got to pray for me. And I was weeping. So he held me. He said, I love you. I said, what? I love you. Ah, brothers and sisters, those were the three words that I longed for in my life. For my father to embrace me and say, I love you, son. And here is this man. He was this short. So I'm looking on his head. <laughs> he said, I love you. And he squeezed me and said, wow, that's it. That's it. God is your father. I have the love of Christ. Even though I had been born again 12 years to that time, I knew my real identity. I knew my real identity as a child of God. And that before God, there are no bastards, there are no stepchildren. Amen. Are you hearing me? There are no illegitimate children. There are no orphans. I embrace that identity. Embrace that identity. The dependence on my self-life, my procrastination, my self-pity. You know, there are people who just enjoy telling others how sick they are. Do you find such people? Yes. Self-pity. They want that sense of what? If I tell you how sick I am, maybe you will accept me and feel sorry for me. Self-pity. God has delivered me. Every day, every day, my prayer is this, Lord, I want your life to be expressed 
in me and through me. I want to experience your life, even as I'm teaching. So in the, in the, in the, in the, when I stand before my students, the prayer is going on. Because somebody somewhere is going to reject you. In fact, there are three kinds of people as far as rejection is concerned. Those that have been rejected, those that are presently rejected, and those that will be rejected tomorrow. Rejection is everywhere. But if you know that you are accepted by the beloved. Not only are you accepted, but you have been made acceptable by the beloved. What can hold you down? What can hold you down? I want to pray. There are some of you here this morning, there's something that you're holding on. You're holding on to it. And God is saying, let go. Let go and let me. It's a life that you are living. Maybe you are looking up to your looks to get that deed met. Maybe you are looking up to your position, your status, your finances, your IQ, your oratory. You're holding on to it to get that need for love met. And God is saying, let go. Surrender it. Because when you surrender unto me, when you give those rights unto me, you know, Jesus had to let go of his rights. The Bible says that even though he was God, but he did not feel it is right to hold on to that right of being God. But he did what? He emptied himself. He emptied himself. He emptied himself. Peter was a very prideful man. Peter, Apostle Peter, outspoken, highly opinionated, and God broke him. Are you surprised when Peter writes about, he says, God resists the what? The proud. And gives grace to the humble. It's only Peter that can write about that. Because he experienced brokenness. You want to be broken this morning. Brokenness is not an instantaneous thing. It's a process. You want to be broken this morning. You've been resisting God in that area of your life. And God is saying, let go. Let go. Let go. Let me. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it abides alone. But when it dies, it springs out and bears fruit and the world would enjoy. Father, I want to thank you. I want to thank you. First of all, for the grace to deliver this message. I was scared. I was nervous. Because this is a message that is from my heart. Will they receive it? So thank you, Father, that ears have heard. The hearts have received. And there will be a growth. There will be brokenness. There will be a surrender. Jesus says, you hold on to it, you lose it. But when you lose it for my sake, that you live. So Lord, I thank you for as many as received your word this morning. And not only receive, but they'll be doers of those words. They are blessed and blessed indeed. Father, thank you.